Good morning, Clemson Presbyterian. It is good to see all of you here this morning. As you heard, my name is Brian Counts, and I am so grateful and honored to be one of the pastors here at this church. Uh, I've been looking forward to this day for a long time to begin to open up and share God's Word with you all to continue to worship as we look at His Word. So please, this morning, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 1, and then we're going to skip down to verses 5 through 8. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Just two, three nights ago, my wife and I were together, the kids were out, and we said, we just cannot believe that we get to be here. Through all the process of leaving a place that we loved of the last 18 years to moving here, you all have helped, you have prayed, you have been so kind, and we are so very thankful. Now, one of the things, you know, as you heard, we're still praying for is a house, right? And if you've ever been house hunting, or even if you haven't, what's the first thing you go check when you hear a house is up for sale? Online. You go to one of the websites where you can see all of the pictures. And there haven't been a lot of houses for sale around here, but when there have been, we go and we check the pictures and we look and we think, this house is amazing. This house is gorgeous. Look at this. It's incredible. And that's because everything looks better online. (laughs) Everything. We go and we find out, oh, this house, of course, it was staged, right? All of the piles of clutter that you and I keep on our counters, gone for the photos for online. All of the extra random furniture, gone. All of the closets cleaned out. The closets online look huge. You get there and you think, well, this is a shoebox of a closet. It looked really, really big when I looked online. And not just has the house been staged for the pictures, but there have been filters applied afterwards, right? So the blues are bluer. Everything is sharper. The light is coming in through the windows. And the fisheye lens makes this 2,500 square foot house look like it's 5,000 square feet until you get inside. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great way to sell a house. I did it when I sold my house. Nothing wrong with it. It's a great way to sell a house, but it's a bad way to live a life. Because I've been thinking as I look at all these houses that have been so beautifully staged so that what's staged looks better than reality, isn't that what I do all the time in my own life? I'm always staging my life. And I have a hunch that you do it as well. You stage your life for others to see it. And sometimes, here's what this passage has to say to us this morning. Sometimes we even use God to do it. Sometimes we even use God to stage our life to make it look better than it really is. So as I read these verses from Matthew chapter 6 this morning, I want you to be listening for that. How does Jesus describe that? And even start to think about your own life. How do you do that in your own life? How do you stage your life? And how might you use God to do it? So Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, and then 5 through 8. This is God's word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And when you pray, you must not be like the, like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we now continue to worship you by looking at your word, uh, we just present our hearts to you. We present these next few moments to you, and we would humbly ask that for your glory, you might show us what Jesus has for us this morning. Even as he spoke these words thousands of years ago, we trust this morning that you had us in mind even as you wrote them down and as he spoke them. So I pray that for each one here, whatever is going on, you might speak to the reality of each life, that you might tear away the places where we don't trust you and that you might build up our joy and trust in you and even draw our hearts to teach us to pray, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, usually after I read the passage, I'll share with you the main points for the morning, but before I do that this morning, I want to zoom out a little bit and tell you why we're even going to look at the Lord's Prayer for the next two months here on Sunday mornings. And yes, this is the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. We'll begin to look specifically at the Lord's Prayer next week. These verses we just read are Jesus' introduction to the Lord's Prayer. But as I was thinking, praying about what do we talk about first, which passage of Scripture do we cover first together, I kept coming back to the Lord's Prayer for really three reasons. The first is, what better to talk of out of the gate than prayer? Because I have a strong, strong belief that if you can be a praying church, if I can be a praying pastor, then we're going to be all right. Whatever happens, whatever God's story is for us together over the coming years, if we can be a praying church and a praying pastor, we're going to be all right. Through the good, through the hard, whatever it might be, if we are praying people, we are going to be all right. And not because it's a formula. Not because I pray, God blesses. That's not necessarily how it works. Either we'll talk more in the sermon as we go. That's not how God always works. It's not just a formula. You put something in, you get something out. But because prayer, even as we heard earlier, reminds us that we're dependent. And it reminds us of who God is and how he is a good father who loves to hear and answer, as we're going to talk about more as we go this morning. The second reason I want to talk about the Lord's Prayer right out of the gate with all of you is that the Lord's Prayer doesn't just show us how to pray, but I think it shows us the kinds of things that Jesus cares about. Because when Jesus says, pray like this, the things he then is going to say are the very things he cares about. And if Jesus cares about them, guess who else should care about them? We should care about them. And so as we begin to talk together over the next few months about where God is going to take this church in the years to come, we need to know and we need to care about what Jesus cares about. That's going to shape our conversations about where God is going to take us in the future. And then third, here's the last reason why I wanted us to talk about the Lord's Prayer. As I've gotten to know this church, I've heard a lot of the stories of how God has worked over the years, and I love to hear those stories. And my favorite stories about the past of Clemson Prez are the stories that go like this. We didn't know what to do, and we prayed, and God showed up. I've heard a lot of those stories as I've gotten to know this church. We prayed 30 years ago, 20 years ago, and God worked. We asked big things of God, and God did big things. And again, we'll talk more in the coming weeks and months and years about how God is going to lead us particularly in the future. But that is my dream so far for Clemson Prez, is that 10, 20, 30 years from now, when people look back on those at Clemson Prez in the 20s, 
That's weird to think about, isn't it? That's what they're going to call our time period in a few years. We're living in the 20s. When they talk about Clemson Prez of the 20s, what I would long for them to say is that those people prayed and God showed up. Isn't that what you want to? So let's go forward. Let's look at the Lord's Prayer. Let's specifically look at this introduction to the Lord's Prayer. And again, the Lord's Prayer, you probably know, is Jesus teaching us how to pray. You could say these verses this morning is Jesus telling us how not to pray. He's got to clear some rocks out of the field before he plants the seed. And so let's get at what he's telling us this morning by asking three questions. One, who do we pray to? Second, how do we pray? And third, why do we pray? So who do we pray to? How do we pray? And third and last, why do we pray? So first, who do we pray to? And now, you don't know me very well yet, and I'm getting to know you, but you're probably thinking, I don't know what you think about us, Brian, but we at least have the answer to this one down. We at least know who to pray to. We've got that much covered. And I think Jesus is saying, not so fast. Because go back with me to verse 1. He says, don't practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. As I was getting to know this church, as I was talking to the search committee, and as I was asking questions, one of the ones I kept coming back to are, what are the idols of people in this town, in this area, in this part of the world? Because they're very similar to other parts of the world, of course, but every place and region sometimes has their own unique things. And what is one of the idols here that people feel like they have to have to make their life worthwhile, or they're terrified of losing? And one of the answers I got more than any other was, They have to have the right appearance. They have to have a certain reputation. And I thought, well, I'm going to fit right in here. I know exactly what that's like because that's one of my idols as well. All of us would be embarrassed, would we not, if others knew how much we cared about our appearance, particularly in front of some people. Others we care about more than others. We have to have them think of us the right way. We craft and manage and manipulate, trying to get them to think of us how we want them to think of us. And here's how we know it's a problem. To whatever degree that's an idol for you, to whatever degree you care about it, would you not be embarrassed if someone knew you cared about it? In other words, do you want to appear like you care about appearances? No, you don't want to appear like you care about appearances. That means we have a problem with it. That's all of us right there. And we do it in all kinds of ways. We craft and manage these reputations and our appearances by what we buy and by the kind of work we choose to go into. We do it by how we dress, how we take care of our houses, how we parent, how we have fun, the things we talk about, what we put on social media, how we do in sports and school, and on and on and on. It's exhausting just to make the list, isn't it? how we try to craft and manage our appearance and our reputation. And again, Jesus is saying we do it sometimes even by using God himself as a reputation boost, as a way to craft and manage a certain appearance in front of others. I'll give you kind of an embarrassing example of how I did it when I first started to walk with the Lord. I first started to walk with him when I was in high school, when I started going to youth group and I looked around at the men that people cared about and respected and looked up to in those circles. Guys who were a few years ahead of me or the volunteers or the staff. And I noticed that a lot of them had Bibles that looked well used. They had Bibles where the shine had come off. You know, it's one of the few books you can buy that have a shiny edge. And these people that others looked up to and respected, the shine was gone. 
their Bibles looked used. And I looked at mine, and it was all bright and shining. How am I going to get people to think that I'm like those guys? And so while I listened to a talk in youth group or a sermon, I would sit there and just kind of like rub the pages, <laughs> trying to get the shine off so that people would think of me a certain way. I was curating an appearance. I was trying to build a reputation. I didn't know a thing about what was in this book, but I wanted it to look like I knew what was in that book. And so just always rubbing the shine off the pages. I don't know if you've got a story like that. I'm sure that you do. Something you've done that eventually just leaves you exhausted and empty because people's value of your appearance comes and goes with the wind. It's a race you never finish and you never win. It's always ongoing. And again, if you look back at this passage with me, just to let you know how this is working, this particular, this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 1 is sort of an overarching thesis statement Jesus makes. You can call this the beginning of his second point of his sermon. Chapter 5 was more or less the first point. Now he's moving into the second. And right here in verse 1, this is what he's going to tell us in verses 1 through 18. Beware. Watch out. Here's a warning. Warnings are kind, aren't they? Jesus is being kind by giving us a warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness in front of others. Beware of how you live your Christian life. Beware of the good deeds you do. Isn't that interesting? Beware of the good deeds you do in front of others. Don't do them in order to be seen by them. And then in verses 2, three, two through 18, he's going to take that apart in three particular areas. First, he's going to take it apart in how we give, and we're not going to look at that because that's verses 2 through 4. And then he's going to take it apart in how we pray, which we are going to look at over the next two months. And then the third area he says to watch out for is how we fast. The three quintessential religious activities of Jesus' day. He says, beware of doing these things to be seen by others, giving, praying, and fasting. He goes through each in a very similar way. He says, when you give, pray, or fast, don't be like the hypocrites. They do it to be seen by men in order to get a reward from them. But do it in secret and your Father will reward you. If you were to go home and read those three sections, you'll see those three things in each one. When you give prayer fast, don't do it to be seen by men, but do it in secret, and your God will reward you. So let's go back now to verse 5 and talk more specifically about prayer and how this is going to work. Again, when you pray, he says, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, in Jesus' day, public prayer was more of a thing, as you might have imagined, than it is in our day. Public prayer is something you rarely see in our day. You see it in church, not many other places, right? But it was a big deal. It was common. Morning, afternoon, and evening, there were public prayers. In the afternoon, when you heard the trumpet at the temple for that afternoon sacrifice, you were to stop, drop, and pray wherever you were when you heard that trumpet. And so people would do that. They'd be walking along through Jerusalem, they would hear the trumpet, and they would stop, and they would pray out loud. So, of course, you're looking around at others who are praying out loud, and you notice those who are doing it really well. And you're like, that guy, he knows what he's doing. How about that guy? He's special. And, that, and, 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 and then that one who just prayed notices and he gets a little hit of approval. What's that thing we get when we get a like on social media? Do you know that chemical? That's right, I heard it. Dopamine, right? 
I bet they got a little hit of dopamine. It was social media before it was social media. He was curating his life in front of others to look a certain way, and suddenly, before he knows it, he's not praying to God. Who's he praying to? The people in front of him. God's got nothing at all to do with this now. So who do we pray to? Well, we know it's God, but who do we really pray to? As soon as we do something publicly for people who are appearance junkies like us, we have to watch. Who are we praying to? Are we praying to God, really? Or are we praying to those who can hear us? Maybe we're even, you might say, praying to ourselves. Whether it's others or ourselves, God's got nothing to do with it at all at this point. Now, you and I aren't tempted usually to go out and stand on the street corner of 123 and College Avenue and pray in front of the Starbucks so people driving by can be so impressed with us. But I don't think it's any less of a temptation for us to use God to do this. Because sometimes when we go to prayer, we start to think, how do I sound? Do I sound like I know what I'm doing? I want to sound good at this. And so we change our tone. We amp up our emotions. And let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with that. When you hear someone doing that in prayer, don't judge them and think, they're just doing it to show off. You don't know. Don't judge their heart. But if you do that in order to impress others, that's what Jesus is getting at. Or I think sometimes when we pray out loud, we go to this normal, conversational, simple tone so that, and again, nothing wrong with that. Don't judge someone when you hear them doing that, but do you do it in order to appear like you're not trying to care about how you appear in prayer? You're not going to have that holy voice. You're just going to talk real simply because you don't want it to look like you care. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's not getting at simple actions. He's not telling us to avoid simple certain actions. He's asking you, who are you praying to? Before we learn how to pray, who are you praying to? To others, to yourself, or are you praying to God himself? Now, you can hear all that and you can wonder, is it, man, is it wrong to pray out loud then? I'm never going to get this right. Well, Jesus himself prayed out loud, didn't he? All through the Old Testament, Daniel, Moses, others prayed out loud. Jesus isn't saying don't pray out loud. When he says do it in secret, yes, there should be a secret one-on-one prayer walk you have with God. But what he means is what's going on in your heart? Are you doing this for the benefit of others? Are you doing it for yourself? Because even back earlier in this same sermon, back in point one, chapter five, he said, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So in chapter 5, Jesus says, let others see your good works. And in chapter 6, he says, don't let anybody see your good works. What? Which one do I do, Jesus? Well, it's the statement, the clause that comes after each one that makes it make sense. Do your good works in front of others so that they give glory to God. Don't do your good works in front of others in order to be praised by them. He's asking us about our heart. That's why he says to pray in secret. It searches our hearts. Even sometimes when you pray in secret, don't you think to yourself, man, if people knew I was praying in secret, wouldn't they be impressed? (laughs) Do you feel the sense of this? You can't shake it. Even when you do the right actions, it's right there with you. And that's what Jesus means when he says we get our reward. You do it for others, and they say, good job. Jesus says, you got it. That's your reward. Now, that's fine and good, but what's the problem with that reward? It's over as soon as it starts, and the cycle starts back up. How do I impress? How do I impress? How do I impress? How do I keep their approval? I've got it. How do I keep 
going. So who are we praying to? Would we do the same things for God if no one knew you were doing it? Who are you praying to? That's our first point. Our second one is, how do we pray? And I think Jesus tells us to pray simply. How do you pray? Simply, directly, honestly, straightforward. That's what it means to pray to God, to do it simply. He tells us that in verse 7. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And you can look it up. We have some written out prayers from the Gentiles of the day, and they're sometimes very long. Sometimes they're calling on as many gods as they can possibly think of just to cover all their bases. And sometimes they're using as many words as they can think of, trying to get any one of these gods to pay attention to them. And they're repeating certain phrases over and over as if I say this enough times, then the God has to be obligated to give me what I want. In other words, if I can just do this the right way, then I'll get what I want out of prayer. And when we first look at what Jesus says here in verses 7 and 8, you might think he's saying, don't pray long prayers. Well, that's not what he's saying. There's long prayers in the Bible. When Jesus went out in the wilderness for 40 days by himself, I bet he had some long prayers. Some of us might, when we first look at this in verses 7 and 8, think, well, then what he's really telling me not to do is to pray for the same thing more than once. God heard it the first time, so I don't need to pray ever again. I prayed 20 years ago to have a good marriage. I don't need to keep praying for that. God heard me the first time. I prayed 20 years ago for my kids to know the Lord. I don't need to keep praying for that. And yet, Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane prays, Lord, not my will but yours, may this cup pass for me. He goes out to his friends, finds them sleeping, wakes them up, goes back and prays, the Gospel of Mark says, the very same words. So you don't have to be afraid of repeating yourself in prayer. That's not the point that Jesus is making. So what is the point? Jesus is warning us again about a heart attitude that can be there as we're praying to the Lord. The heart attitude that says, I've got to find a way to get God by the tail. I've got to find a way to control him. I've got to learn about this prayer thing to get the life I want. And no, I'm not going to be so crass as to pray for a lot of money. And I'm not going to be so greedy as to pray that I would just be blessed and popular. No, I'm more holy than that. But I do want to know how to pray to keep my kids safe. I do want to know how to pray to keep myself away from being embarrassed. I do want just enough. Do you ever feel that way, even in prayer? I confess, there's times I've wanted to learn how to pray to get the life I want. If I can just do it the right way. Maybe I need to pray longer. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe I need to pray with the right outline. And you know, there's great outlines to teach us how to pray. You know, you can come praising God and then confessing your sin and thanking and then asking. Maybe if I did it that way. Maybe if I spent time praying at the same time every day. Maybe if I just had the right routine. Or maybe if I prayed scripture. Or maybe if I did it this way. Now, all of those things are good. And we'll talk even about some of those things as we go. Ways that are practical to learn how to pray. I'm not saying those are bad. What I'm saying is, and I hope this is, I've got what Jesus is saying. I think this is what he's saying. Watch out for the hard attitude. Don't think by, him, by piling up empty phrases that God has to do what you want. Prayer is not a magic spell where if you can just get the words right, then you're going to get what you want. And it's not just prayer we do that with. We do it with so many other parts of our walk with the Lord. 
If I just go to church enough, or read my Bible enough, or share my faith enough, or whatever it might be, then I'll get God to do what I want. And God's like, I'm your good father. I know what you need before you ask me. You don't have to get it right. I'm going to give you better than you ever imagined in the first place. So you don't have to get it right. If I can just do all the right things, maybe it's if I can just practice community and be authentic enough in my relationships, then I'll have the life that I want. Prayer, Jesus is saying, is not a mechanical transaction. You put in a quarter and you get out a Coke, or a dollar, I guess now, right? Inflation, $2, $3, whatever it is. I'll put in money and I'll get out what I want. He's saying, no, you can't treat God that way. How do you feel when somebody comes to you that way? They're nice to you. They make friends with you. They pursue you. And then you found out they were just using you to get something they wanted. How do you feel? Used. I think Jesus is saying, God doesn't like to be treated that way either. He doesn't like you snoozing up to him just to get your way. Instead, what he wants is you to know, as verse 8 says, you have a father who knows what you need before you ask him. So watch out praying to others for their sake. And watch out trying to get God to do what you want. Instead, just pray simply and directly and honestly. Yes, you can pour out your heart over and over, but you're not going to find the right formula to control him. And so lastly, let's turn to why do we pray. And to answer that, I need to show you how the idea of the presence of God makes this passage work, right? Are you praying to get others to notice? Are you praying to control God? God knows. God sees. He already knows that. Are you doing something in secret? God knows that too. In other words, this passage tells us that no matter what we do, where we do it, or why we do it, God knows. God sees the presence of God. And isn't that great? Until it's not. Because God knows. God sees. He knows what we do. He even knows why we do it. And that's how so many have rightly said this is the most searching and humbling passage perhaps in all of the Bible. Because even when we're doing the right things, it's asking us about our heart and about our motive and about our why. He's coming and saying you can't reduce sin down to just actions. And don't we do that so often? Don't we reduce sin down to just actions? And isn't it usually the actions that others struggle with? Well, thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm not a drunk in the gutter. Thank God I don't struggle with sexual immorality. Thank God I'm not a religious uh, coward and hypocrite like those others. And we reduce it down to that. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to show you just how terrible sin is. It's not just an action, it's a disposition. And it will follow you right into the throne room of God. Even when you pray, there it is. Even when you pray, there it is. It's an attitude of self-worship and self-love. And if that does not convince me and you of our need for God, of our need for grace, of our need for forgiveness, I don't know what can. Even when we pray, even when we worship, so often what we're doing is worshiping ourselves. But if it's the presence of God that makes this passage work, it's not just the presence of a God who knows everything. It's the presence of a father. And just to make a point, you know, you can tell when someone's trying to make a point by if they repeat themselves over and over. Jesus has called God Father more in the Sermon on the Mount than all of the Old Testament combined to that point. He's done it three times in chapter 5, I think. 
He's done it in verse 1, in verse 4, in verse 6, in verse 8 of chapter 6. And then he goes on to call God Father in verse 9, 14, 15, and 18. He's constantly calling God Father. Why do we pray? Well, first look at the fact we're in the presence of a holy God, but not just that, the presence of a Father. That makes this passage work. And we're going to talk more about that next week when we talk about our Father who is in heaven. But this morning, as we begin to wrap up, I just want to whet your appetite for this incredible good news that God is our Father and what it means for our prayer life. So here's the thing. Even this God whom we try to use as a means to an end, he says, I'm your Father. Even when we sin in that way, he says, call me Father. How can he do this? Well, because we say it every week here, and we're, Lord willing, never going to stop. Because God has found a way to deal with our sin. Our sin of those terrible, sinful actions that we look at in others, and our sin of doing the right thing for the wrong reason, our self-love and self-worship. He did it by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, as one of us to live a perfect life in our place. And those are words you might hear a lot and forget, but think of it this way. Jesus had a public ministry of three years and his whole 30 years before that. And he never once preached a sermon, healed a sick person, did a miracle, with the wrong motives. He never once cared in a sinful way about what others thought. He never once tried to curate an appearance in front of others. He was so secure and confident in his father's love, he didn't need to do that. That's how perfect he is. I can't go three minutes without caring about that. He did it for 33 years. And then not just that, he never once tried to control or manipulate God. How do we know? Because we saw him one time in the most desperate situation he was ever in, that anyone's ever been in, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed, Lord, please, don't let me do this. Let's find another way, but not my will, but yours. That is the direct opposite of trying to control or manipulate God through prayer. Pouring out his heart, asking his Father earnestly, and yet, not my will, but yours. Jesus lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross, taking the punishment for your sin, for my sin, for all of this self-love and self-worship. And by faith alone, we get his record, so that when your Father now looks at you, he sees you as Jesus obeyed. He sees someone, because of his grace, who always does the right thing for the right reason, who never tries to control or manipulate him through doing the right thing. That's the record that we get. And how do we know? Because Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jesus lost his father on the cross so that you and I never will lose our father. And doesn't that help us to pray? Doesn't that help us when we think, I'm never gonna get this right? And you're right, you won't. Neither will I. <laughs> You'll always be struggling with bad motives. You'll always be struggling with God trying to say, I want the right outcome. But he's saying, come anyway. I'm your father. I know you're not getting it right. I know you're not getting it right, but come anyway. You don't have to impress me. You don't need to control me because I've got your best for you. Now, again, a lot of us, 
I know this church well enough and I know myself. We're doers, we're performers, we want to get it right and we're still discouraged. I want to get this right. Let me share with you this story from a man named Bob Flayhart, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite uh, preachers. He is a pastor of a church in Birmingham. He tells the story of a friend, of a friend of his that had a six-year-old son. And the six-year-old son had a sandbox in his backyard. Did you have a sandbox? Do your kids have a sandbox? It was this kid's favorite place to play. Six years old, and he's got his scoopers and his diggers and his trucks and his army men and everything in the sandbox, and he'd build piles and he'd tear them down. And his dad just delighted to send him out to play where he loved to play. But he said, you can't go out there after a rainstorm, like what we had yesterday afternoon or what we hope is not coming this afternoon, right? He wouldn't let him go out to play in the sandbox after the rainstorm. Why? Because he knew he would splash around, get sand in his eyes, and it would be painful to his son. He did it because he loved his son. Well, one day it rained, and his son said, Dad, can I go outside and play in the sandbox? No, son, you can't. And so, of course, what did the son do? He went out and played in the sandbox. And, of course, then what happened? He cried because his eyes are scratchy and itchy. They have sand in them. His father hears the son in the sandbox crying, and he looks at him, and he can see on his face this internal wrestling. I want to run to my dad for help, but is he going to be mad at me? Is there going to be shame because I did exactly? He knows that I've disobeyed him. And the dad said, it's a lot easier to hug a dirty child than a distant child. And I think that's true in prayer. You're going to get it wrong, folks. I'm going to get it wrong. You're going to pray out loud and you're going to care what other people think. You're going to pray and try to get the right outcome from God. But still run to your father. Pray, pour out your heart. He's there in a sense, yes, to give you a hug, a dirty child, but one who has been completely forgiven, completely healed, completely restored. So when we pray, try to forget everything else but God. It's going to be impossible, but try. Remember that he's there, that he's powerful, and be confident. Be confident that your father loves you even as he loved his own son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, your grace is good news for a sinner like me, for sinners like us. And Father, we are searched out by this passage. Our hearts are laid bare. You know we do the right thing for the wrong reason. You know we try to show off for others. You know we think that we know better than you, and if we can just get it right, you'll give us what we want. Father, I pray that all of that would go away as we know you as a father. I pray that we would be so secure in what you think about us that we wouldn't have to care anymore what others think, that we wouldn't have to have a certain appearance, and that we wouldn't try to control you, but trust you for the best things that there are. Father, forgive us for seeing you as standing in between us and the good life. And let us know that you are a Father who has the best life for us. Maybe not the things that we think a good life is, but the absolute best for us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.